The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 180 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my, are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence or privileges as a result of my current employment. I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Well, folks, George brought on one of the most respected cybersecurity professionals in the world and former CISO of Mass Mutual, Aetna, KPMG, DTCC, and American Express, Mr. James Ralph, on the show last week. That's episode number 179 of TSF Radio to break down what companies should be doing to defend themselves against supply chain attacks and how CISOs should be thinking about their DevOps programs moving forward. Mr. Ralph also gave his opinions and thoughts on how the new U.S. administration should shape cybersecurity policy and if the newly announced sanctions against Russia went far enough to be a successful deterrent against future attacks. They wrapped up the third segment of the show, getting Jim's thoughts on the cybersecurity job market and the talent war. Jim also broke down what employee retention should really look like and all that and much, much more. There's something for everybody, folks, on episode 179 of Task Force 7 Radio. If you missed it, don't sweat it. We're on at least 11 play- different playback mediums. You can find us everywhere, folks. That's episode 179, Defending Your Company Against Supply Chain Attacks on last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, folks, we got another great guest for you tonight. We got the former Department of Justice prosecutor, Erez Lieberman, on the show with me tonight. Erez is currently enjoying some time off as he's in between ventures. That'll start in early May. But he just finished up his seven years at Prudential's Chief Counsel on Cybersecurity, Privacy, and Data Matters. He led a team on a wide range of cybersecurity and privacy, legal, policy, and investigative matters. He was primary counsel to the business and corporate functions, including Information Security Office, Global Privacy Office, and IT Risk, on all information security and privacy matters. In that role, Ares oversaw the High Tech Investigations Unit. Together with ISO and IT Risk, Ares worked closely with to review enterprise cybersecurity program and update executive management on enterprise programs. Ares also served as a point of contact to regulators, law enforcement on cybersecurity and privacy matters, and provide, provided updates to the enterprise on the regulatory and threat landscape. Through his work with the High Tech Investigations Unit, Ares oversaw investigations into cybersecurity incidents, privacy breaches, and intellectual property theft, as well as e-discovery production and computer forensics. He previously led Prudential's Corporate Investigations Division. And prior to joining Prudential Financial in February 2014, Ares spent 10 years as a United States federal prosecutor. He serves as the Deputy Chief of the Criminal Division at the U.S. Attorney's Office District of New Jersey and the Chief of the Computer Hacking and Intellectual Property Section Additionally, ERA's oversaw white collar crime units, including electronic economic crimes, national security, healthcare, and money laundering. ERA's was a recipient of numerous awards, including the U.S. Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service. He's a frequent lecturer on cybercrime, privacy, and fraud. He previously taught cybercrime law at Rutgers University School of Law. He graduated from University of Virginia with a degree in aerospace engineering and received his law degree from Columbia University. It's my pleasure to introduce former Department of Justice prosecutor, Erez Lieberman. Erez, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, buddy. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. Excited to join you here today. Oh, man. I'm so excited to have you on. I mean, look, we, we go way back to uh, before we had, uh, I guess, so I guess our, our private sector careers post-government. And so I, uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. I mean, look, y- you were instrumental in the, in the, you know, the major stuff I worked um, that kind of launched my private sector career. And I got to be honest, a lot of people still don't fully understand the role of the lawyer 
in cybercrime investigations. And you mind kind of just giving your, your background and then kind of what's the difference between like a regular lawyer and a cybercrime lawyer? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. Most people don't understand that. I think people view the role of lawyers, especially those who aren't, as kind of in law and order, right? That the investigator, the Secret Service agent, the FBI agent, or in law and order, what it was, detectives, they investigate the case, they wrap it up in a bow, they put it on the prosecutor's office desk, and then boom, gone. And all of a sudden, the prosecutor takes over from there. Uh, but as you know, it's much, much earlier than that, especially on long-term investigations. It's a true partnership uh, and a give and take uh, on the role. And uh, I think the lawyer becomes also an investigator and come trial time and indictment time, the investigator becomes also a lawyer and we're really a partnership. And, and I loved it when we were uh, doing that. The, a lot of people ask me, so what does it take to be a cyber lawyer? Do you need to be a programmer? Do you need to be uh, a tech background? And my answer is no, you really don't. I, I work with a very talented individual, Andrew Pack, who does not have a tech background. That's not what his undergraduate degree is, although he's, he's a nerd and loves that stuff, listens to podcasts like this and others and really eats it all up. But you don't have to. I mean, his background was not in technology and he, he got that. Mine, on the other hand, was. I was an aerospace engineer as an undergrad, uh, was brainwashed at home to be an engineer. And, and loved it, although in high school, I started doing debate and in college, I would, did more debate, really uh, wanted to go to law. So the tech background for me is helpful in the way to approach two things. One, technology, right? It helps you understand what agents and cases bring to you and how to understand the technology that comes through those. But the other part, and this is an interesting element, in cybercrime and cybersecurity, you're constantly working with technology people like yourself and, and other technology people. And when you're doing that, you need to gain their trust. And I learned early on uh, that engineers and uh, programmers and others, they may not love lawyers. We may not want to admit that, but we know that, right? And, and so how do you break down that distrust? Well, I, I break it down by telling them, look, guys, I know about this distrust. I know about the lack of uh, love between lawyers and engineers at times, and I'm an engineer as well. And it really helps kind of break the ice and bring people together and bring me together on the same team. It has also helped me understand the mentality of some of the tech people I work with. And I say that uh, because to me, when you're in technology, when you're an engineer, when you're dealing with cyber, you always want to fix, right? That's what a technologist does. That's what an engineer does. They design, they fix and your mindset is to fix. And so I understand that when you're dealing with a cybersecurity individual and they see a breach and you say, wait, you're not supposed to touch that. You're supposed to let the investigators come in, et cetera. But that's against their nature. They want to fix it. They see a problem and they want to immediately repair it. And so it never comes from a bad place that somebody on the IT team who's not supposed to be doing the review is trying to do that anyway. And I'll get to that. Real quick, buddy. So you bring up an interesting point, right? Like, you know, the idea of wanting to fix everything, but that also means like, you know, jumping right in. And, and, and when we talk about a data breach, it's still a crime scene. And there's a very big distinction. Love to get your take on this between, you know, the traditional put the police tape up and don't let anybody in, which you would normally do in any other type of investigation. But in a data breach or network intrusion, you've got this uh, you know, active adversary that you have to get out of the network or to at least contain it so you can put the police tape up. So can you explain the difference between, you know, kind of putting the police tape up and keeping people out and then working in a live environment where you might actually have to step in the pool of blood during the course of your investigation and how like best evidence applies? Yeah, great, great question. So it, it, as you pointed out, it's not just that you need to investigate the active intrusion. When you have a, a data breach, you're still an active company. It's not just the investigation. You need to keep the company going. You've got presumably products you're working on, clients you're, you need to serve. Maybe you're in government and you have a data breach and you've got uh, government issues that or data secrets that you have to deal with. So all of these are gonna be driving you to continue to work this. It can't be like a regular crime scene where we put the tape up, tell all the traffic to go away, and nobody can come in. We've got to find that right balance. 
Uh, and that does sometimes come into questions with uh, evidence preservation. And so the ideal scenario is that we're able to take snapshots, we're able to maybe ensure that we've got backup servers in place, that we've got most recent snapshots, or that we're otherwise introducing an element to do that and that preservation while we continue to get everything up and running. But it is, we can't err on one side or the other for the simple reason that that evidence is fleeting. If you need to prove to your board or to your shareholders or to regulators or plaintiffs later on uh, what happened and what the process was and under explain what happened, you need to have the evidence. And it, the moment you are switching off a computer, the moment you uh, are overwriting something in order to fix it, you might lose that. So as quickly as possible, you do want to create preservation with the understanding that you cannot stay out of there uh, like you can in a regular crime scene. So let's go back a little bit because I, I, you know, when you're giving, you know, kind of going over your background, how you get into the field, there's one part that I, I, I want to, you know, dive into a little bit, which is you get a call from Chris Christie's staff. Right? Yeah. Tell yeah. me a little bit about how that came up. That's a, you know, polarizing figure, right? Served the state of New Jersey. They served the country. What, what, what did that, what was that like? What was that? Well, so Chris Christie was the U.S. attorney when I was applying for the U.S. attorney's office. There you go. And he was a fantastic U.S. attorney. There was a lot of criticism about uh, his appointment uh, because he did not have U.S. attorney background or any prosecutorial background. Uh, the Star-Ledger, when he left, put out an editorial essentially saying we were wrong, he was great, and they are not exactly on the same side of the political spectrum. So that just goes to show uh, what a job he did. For me, I sent in the application. There was a hiring freeze at the time. So it took two years from the time I applied till the time I started. And one time, it was a, essentially July 4th weekend, I get a phone call. And I started in December of that year, so it was still not there. And I get a phone call from uh, Charlie McKenna, who said to me, look, we still haven't decided yet, but are you interested in doing cyber work? And I, I was trying everything I could to contain my excitement because I didn't want it to be that it looked like I was only interested in doing cyber work. So I had to try and contain that just a little bit. But I was I was ready to jump out of my shoes for joy at that, at that idea. The sexiest kind of work you can do. Uh, and then I said to him, I said, look, I don't know what kind of background you need to do a cyber prosecutor. I did a little bit of programming uh, in college. I'm an engineer. And Charlie says to me, look, all you need to tell me is you know how to turn on a computer and you're ahead of most people at the U.S. Attorney's Office in terms of technology. <laughs> so if you've done some programming, if you're an engineer, uh, we may have an opening in the cyber section. We are going to circle back with you vis-a-vis uh, -vis an offer. But that was the, the most exciting thing. But that phone call, by the way, occurred on a holiday weekend, Fourth of July weekend. And I didn't understand what they were all doing there uh, during the holiday weekend because you could hear in the background a lot of buzz. And it turns out that uh, that was the weekend that they were preparing the, uh, play, the plea or the indictment against Charlie Kushner, right? And it's just unbelievable, right? If you fast forward and see the Kushner and where that all happened, but that, that was all uh, that weekend. I was uh, very excited a couple months later to get an offer and uh, started my uh, career at the U.S. Attorney's Office. It also should have been a sign that we knew we were gonna be working every night and weekend and holiday. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. No breach occurs at any time except for on a Friday afternoon, that's for sure. That's right. Look, I, I cannot wait to dive into some of the cases you worked on, especially the ones that we were involved with together. But all right, folks, we've got a transition to commercial break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram and searching at TF7 Radio. You'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.readus at tf7radio.com. That's george.readus at tf7. That's with the number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause for a quick message from our sponsor. We're right back with the Department of Justice prosecutor, Erez Lieberman. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. 
with forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with former Department of Justice Prosecutor, Erez Lieberman. So, Erez, you know, before, before we gave you the call, you know, around the Heartland case that, you know, that I was involved with that we ended up teaming up on, what were you working on, man? Was it the Pena case? Yeah, Pena was one of my earlier cases, a uh, great little case with the FBI, not so little. It, it was the first investigation into VoIP hacking, Right, and I know all our listeners would know what uh, voice over internet protocol is. Uh, this was earlier in the days of that, back around probably 06. And the individual, Edwin Pena, figured out that uh, all the voice, the call trafficking goes to the lowest reseller. Uh, and what's the easiest way to undercut the market? Well, if you steal services and then sell access to those services at a lower price, you can undercut the market. He made about $1.4 million in eight to 12 months. And he did that uh, through hacking. And he hacked into Net2Phone, uh, which is an IDT company. It was a mistake for him because an amazing internal investigator there, Golan Benoni, uh, picked up on this, referred the case to the FBI. And the FBI brought me in and we started an investigation. But we didn't know who was involved. I started putting pieces together uh, through over 100 subpoenas. Uh, each one of these telephone calls uh, is a segment. And so one call doesn't hop from, you know, your phone number to my phone number. It might take a hundred different hops. So working each one of those backwards took us really over a hundred subpoenas. Uh, finally, we understood that a lot of these calls had originated with a service registered to Edwin Pena, but we still weren't sure, weren't sure, is it him? You know, as well as I do in cybercrime, you can identify a name, but how do you put a person and say, well, this person is actually the right person with that name? That's how the spy game that becomes so fun. Right, exactly. And so how do you identify that even if it is, it wasn't a stolen identity or it wasn't his neighbor or his uh, roommate or something along those lines. And so we had to start figuring that out. And, and we learned that 
the identity of Edwin Pena posted online on Beamer forums. And so we started reading his messages and, and the chats that he had online on Beamer forums and were able to confirm through some of his discussions about the BMW that he bought and how early he was getting adapt adaptations to that. So we said, well, let's find where that could have been purchased and where the money trail leads. And it led to the same place we were looking at. And then he had a medical issue he talked about online. And so we said, okay, wait a second. The real Edwin Payton you know, also had a medical issue because we were able to get evidence of that. And so now we're starting to put the actual person behind the keyboard, behind the identity. He also worked with another individual, Robert Moore, who did some of the programming for him. Robert Moore uh, was smart. He wanted to disguise his activity. And so what did he do? He hacked into a cable modem of somebody who he knew and used that person's cable modem to conduct all of his activities. So again, this shows that we arrested, if we gone in and looked at that other person, their cable modem and arrested that individual, we would have had the wrong individual. Uh, but we were able to work backwards from that and say, wait, it doesn't look like that guy's also involved. This cable modem was actually just hacked. Uh, and so he was not arrested on our day of, of the raid. And we had uh, 10 different locations searched uh, the day we finally took the case down. The mistake Moore made is that even though he was good about hiding his identity vis-a-vis -vis the IP addresses, he got money from Edwin Pena, took a picture of himself literally fanning the money, uh, and then posted that picture on his MySpace account. That Back in the day. We call MySpace. So, you know, we don't always catch the geniuses, although he was a genius in other ways, but uh, that was obviously a, a mistake that he made. U ultimately, we caught Pena, uh, but the judge believed him and when he said he's not going to flee. And so she put him on bail with a bracelet. Uh, Edwin Pena cut that bracelet one day and fled. And he fled down to Venezuela, which with which we have no extradition treaty. So we were able to track him there. Uh, we were not able to then identify that he moved out of Venezuela. But one day, a few years later, I'm sitting at a friend's house and I get a phone call from an agent. And she says to me, We've got Pena. We know where he is. And I said, are you serious? <laughs> and the story is like this. He moved from Venezuela, where apparently law enforcement over there heard uh, about the fact that he was out and that he made a lot of money, but he was fleeing from us and was trying to extort him. So he left that scenario to not be extorted. And he moved to Mexico. In Mexico, he made a life for himself. He got married. His wife was pregnant. And it turns out that he was cheating on her. And as I told the judge at sentencing, because it was his wife ultimately that turned him in, I told the judge at sentencing, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And he obviously, for all the reasons of morality and others, should not have done this. But uh, when he cheated on her, she turned him in. Uh, we were able to work with Mexican federal police. Uh, they arrested him, turned him over to the FBI, and we brought him to justice, and he served the 10-year sentence. So uh, quite a case. Uh, made a lot of splash because it was the first type case of its type and, and very interesting the way they did it. So, so interestingly, right? I mean, I think one thing that goes unnoticed by the public a lot of times is that these investigations are more like marathons, not sprints. And you've got to be committed to the long game. You know, I think, I think to your point where you, you started about like law and order, right? TV, you know, CSI, whatever, pick whatever show there. Do you saw all of a sudden that just like snap of a finger, a couple buttons, everything, all the information's up on a screen like that typically takes years to put all that together and to get it right. Um, and, and, you know, another marathon that you and I worked together, which, you know, was speaking of, you know, really smart criminals just making one mistake, you know, the Heartland case was, you know, comes to mind for sure. Um, where, you know, Albert, who, you know, wasn't cooperating on the time with other, you know, cases that he was already indicted on. And then you and I are working the Heartland breach going, man, there's real pressure in the financial sector to put a face to this, you know, hundreds of thousands of credit cards being stolen. I think at one point, the, the you know, some of our information was that 75% of the world's credit cards were stolen in the course of this investigation. Um, but, you know, tell me about, you know, I remember not, you know, kind of calling you up <laughs> telling you what we got, you know, kind of take it from there, right? We had, we had, we, you know, we had uh, major breaches, lots of data stolen. Um, we had, you know, potentially, uh, you know, a suspect of someone who was already indicted on other, other charges, um, but wasn't cooperating. Yeah. So we, 
we had Albert Gonzalez, who was, well, I don't know, everyone knows the story, but the short version is that he got caught on uh, ATM skimming or ATM work and then uh, cooperated, helped create one of the best uh, investigations. I'm not complimenting myself. I had nothing to do with it. One of the best investigations, take down Shadow Crew, one of the first forums for trading credit cards. And uh, unbeknownst to everyone working it at the time, he was creating other biggest breaches, the TJX line of cases. Um, but he also, aside from those, which were really Wi-Fi based breaches, right? He was creating another set of breaches with another group. And that was where Heartland came in. So Heartland, uh, not a most known company, but it was at the time the sixth largest credit and debit card processor in the United States. Uh, they had a breach with over 110 million credit and debit cards stolen. It's, it's still to this date, the largest credit and debit card breach uh, known. And, and overall, the group did over 200 million credit and debit cards. It's still uh, huge in that world. Uh, but we didn't really know how to prove all of these other breaches together. And that was really one of the challenges, right? So we could identify Heartland. We started putting that together as also related to Albert and his crew. But that's where you and I got together and really started having to figure out, well, how do we prove that this breach is related to other breaches, right? We were working in the JCPenney breach, the 7-Eleven breach, uh, NASDAQ was breached. There were other breaches that we had this gut feeling were related and we had some snippets of evidence, but we could not ultimately uh, put it together just by those. There was not one piece of evidence that tied all these together for us to be able to create that cohesive uh, indictment. Uh, I remember Andy coming down to Secret Service headquarters and working through uh, that question and uh, the massive charts that, that you and uh, Jeremy Earhart and others at the Secret Service were working on. Uh, how do we piece this together? And, and we created that matrix. You remember that monster matrix? Man, it was a work of art. I mean, if you think about you know, look, this for the audience, I think this is important to understand, right? Number one, you've got a bunch of criminals who don't use their real name, who you've got to now merge their online identity with their real world identity and put them at the site, we'll call it scene of the crime somehow. And then you have a bunch of networks around the world that have been breached. And you have to link the technical aspects of all of those breaches together back to these unknown people, right? And it's, it's really an amazing effort to do. Uh, and it takes a whole bunch of resources and people and analytics to do that. But when you do it and you can simplify it, you know, into a chart, even though it's really large, you know, and simplify the complexity of these things, um, you can then convince, a, you know, a grand jury who knows nothing about technology typically to agree with you that this has actually happened. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I give it, you guys a ton of credit. So, I remember working this chart and on the left side, kind of we lined up and said, here are the victims, what, Wet Seal, JCPenney, 7-Eleven, Hannaford was one of the victims, Heartland, NASDAQ. Uh, and we had one of those servers that you guys had seized also. I think it was the Ukrainian server that we were working on through international cooperation. And not one of these pieces of evidence, we had all the hashes from all the different malware. We had IP addresses that were used for infiltration and exfiltration. But not one of them lined up across all these for us to say, yep, it's the same guys. It must be. They all work. But we were able to say that a hash from one piece of malware matched these two files and a hash from another one matched uh, or these two victims and, the, and another one matched these three. And another IP address was common to four out of the five or six and ultimately said, OK, not one matches all of them. But there's so much crossover among the different files, the different IP addresses, the different uh, methods of intrusion that they have to line up. And we certainly uh, had the evidence there to demonstrate that, to explain that to the grand jury. And obviously, the evidence was strong enough that no defendant wanted to challenge that. But it was, I, I think, just amazing work by, by you guys uh, to put that together and help us identify that. But you know, you asked earlier about evidence preservation and, and what we need. And, and this is why every single piece of evidence is critical because we needed every single one. There wasn't a smoking gun that you could use without this. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and when you talked about Operation Firewall, right, I mean, just the foundation of all the intelligence that was captured during the course of that amazing investigation, 
you know, became the backbone of a lot of the information we were able to start to work off it from a, not from an intrusion standpoint, but from a people standpoint. And, you know, for for all you you cyber investigators out there, it's important to remember that, you know, you may be tracking the really sophisticated attackers today, but when they first started, they were sloppy. They were still learning and they were still getting their sea legs under them. So there's going to be some mistakes somewhere they're in the course of their history. It's going to let them slip up and you got to, you got to try to get that information as far back as possible. Cause that's, that's the key. Oh yeah. I, I remember. So right, we were working the case, you and I, we indicted it. We knew that we had, obviously Albert was already in jail. We ended up uh, having him sentenced to over 20 years. Uh, but the case went on, you had uh, gone on to greener pastures at some point, the case went on and I kind of left me behind to keep fighting this. But, uh, <laughs> hacker one and hacker two. <laughs> yeah, Hacker 1 and Hacker 2, right? And we had to figure out how we get through those. And uh, uh, and our, you know, mainstream uh, dumps vendor, Dimitris Milianitz, and how do we how do we identify? And Hacker 1 and Hacker 2, I would have sworn we would never, ever identify. What a, a great job by them, I hate to say it, uh, to conceal their identities. And, and ultimately, what we, we figured out the Knicks were Greg and Annex. Uh, and this is all public, of course. And then we figured out um, we still didn't know who who Grig and Annex were for the longest time uh, until one day I get a call from the Secret Service years later. And they say to me, look, we believe that we have identified uh, Smilianitz traveling. Uh, and so the first time they do that, they say, we think because he's part of a gaming crew, uh, he has traveled to Korea to an international uh, gaming competition. Uh, but uh, for better or worse, we missed him there. I, I always think of the uh, quote from um, Breakpoint where he says, I missed you by a week in Fiji, but I knew you wouldn't miss the 50-year storm. And, <laughs> and, and so we missed him. That was not my best Keanu Reeves because that's too embarrassing. Uh, but the, we, we missed him there. We didn't have our ducks in a row at the right time. And then again, he traveled uh, this time to the Netherlands uh, and he traveled to the to Amsterdam for the same reason that many people do, which is that it's beautiful and there's pot there. Uh, and so uh, that's what he did. So the Secret Service calls me. They say we're going to work on uh, an arrest warrant and a package. The the partners that we had at, at the National High Tech uh, Unit over in the Netherlands are unbelievable law enforcement partners, just top, top notch. And we started doing the math and we said, but wait, he's traveling with somebody. What if it's one of the individuals who we're looking for? And, you know, as you said, it's tough to identify these identities and to figure out and to crack them, uh, especially when you're going from a nickname and trying to go to a name. But here we were able to identify travel records that he was traveling with this guy named Vladimir Drinkman, but that didn't tell us enough yet. We didn't say, well, Vladimir Drinkman is definitely hacker one or hacker two. It's either Greg or Annex. We didn't have that. And so, but instead of doing the math by going from the word Annex to the name, we went from the name and said, what can we identify with this name? What an amazing job the Secret Service did to start working backwards to find out his nickname, one nickname, and then to say, well, that nickname actually connects to Annex. And it's just because they all of a sudden started looking at it from a different perspective. The, once they identified that, they uh, did a tremendous job of figuring out where they were. And they did that job, not through the most sophisticated of all undercover work, but simply saying, wait, we know from their online personas that they have decided to travel to Amsterdam and we will call every hotel and TripAdvisor until one of them says that these guys are staying there. And I think I, I learned that it was hotel number 17. I can't remember the name of that, uh, who, that actually had these guys there. And, and from there, uh, the investigation proceeded and, and arrests were made. Uh, yeah, it's just I, a great, I mean, you know, just great example of how like organized crime type operations kind of, you know, just kind of build on top of each other. You know, agents can come and go, but the, the pursuit of justice, right? You know, stays stays at the front and center. It's just amazing, and the intelligence that you get from these really high-profile criminals because they're they're the ones that are driving the economy of cybercrime, right? People don't realize these the people we're talking about were driving the economy of cybercrime and and managing and partnering with people who led the infrastructure of billions of dollars in this industry. 
right? It's not just the credit card fraud that they committed or what the data breaches that they had. It's, like, it's what they represented, the groups they were a part of, and then the intelligence that comes from being able to access those individuals, you know, hard drives and, you know, their phones, once you, once you get access to them um, and, you, you know, you've got access to their, to their data. So, um, man, you know, just really great work. It's fun to see, but I hope the public, you know, understands or gets some appreciation for the, you know, the marathon and the impact because uh, you only hear about, you know, oh, we arrested one person or two people, but the impact, you know, is, is really large. So anyway, man, I, I really want to get your perspective on, um, kind of what happened for you after that, right? You know, you finished up, you know, some really great cases, I think even after the Annex and Greg stuff, and then uh, you moved on into the private sector. Tell us a little bit about the transition back into the private sector for you after being in the government again. Yeah, uh, so thank you. So, you know, I, when I was leaving the U.S. Attorney's office, I thought to myself, uh, this is the job of a lifetime. And, and I, good friend of mine there said to me, he said, look, it is the job of a lifetime, but that doesn't mean it needs to be a job for a lifetime, right? Some people stay and make a full career out of it. That's totally unbelievable and and amazing public service. But there came a point for me that I was interested in new challenges, also needed to make sure I had a little more money to support uh, the kids going to college at the end of the day. And so I made the decision to leave I got extremely fortunate to have an opportunity to join Prudential, which is literally down the street from the old office, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office where I worked, uh, just a few blocks away, and and to come in and lead the investigations team. And at the time, that investigations team had both the regular investigations, fraud, uh, wrongdoing, et cetera, as well as forensics. Within about a year, the office said, look, there are a lot of people whose talents can be used to lead traditional investigations, but cyber is obviously growing and we need you to help us build out both the cyber investigations team and a cyber and privacy legal group. Uh, so in a right place at the right time, uh, I had that interest and, and the world had kind of increased its regulatory oversight and the regulatory world in order to provide function like that uh, with in, in the in-house world. I tell you at the time, I don't know why I was doing a LinkedIn search, but I did. This was probably in what, 2014, 2015. I did a LinkedIn search for cybersecurity lawyer. And there were maybe a couple handfuls of, of that term anywhere on LinkedIn for anybody. Cybersecurity lawyer was just a concept that did not exist uh, in-house or law firms at, at, in 2015, just just literally less than two handfuls. You do it now, thousands of people uh, come up as cybersecurity attorney, law counsel, et cetera. But that's how new that field is. And it's been, it, it was amazing for me. I mean, Prudential was an amazing place to do it. I was afraid uh, that the in-house world would not be exciting, would not be challenging. And oh boy, was I wrong. Uh, in-house world at, at a Fortune 50 company, uh, as you know, Andy, it can be uh, every bit as interesting, every bit as challenging. Prudential is global, right? So uh, almost half of it's in Japan. So I got to go to Japan a number of times, work up with that. Uh, offices around the world dealing with different regulatory regimes in Europe, in Asia, in South America, emerging markets. And that was just, it's an amazing experience uh, to do that. Yeah. And for folks that don't know the, you know, insurance industry in the United States is also regulated by every state. So you also have uh, every state that's coming in to audit your cyber privacy practice and everything. So you're not just dealing with all the international regulatory environment, you're dealing with a state by state plus federal, like it's a big deal. <laughs> that's exactly right. So, and, and it's the states actually that in the cyber world, at least for the financial services world, uh, really took one of the leading regulations. It was New York State that came oh, out with the New York yeah. Department of Financial Services regulation. And that, to the extent that there was a question about the role of a lawyer as a cybersecurity counsel and compliance with cybersecurity laws, uh, that regulation put it on the map in a way that none other none others did, even though, right, certainly the HIPAA security rules should have done that years ago, but for some reason hadn't yet generated that. People looked at that, I think, as a niche uh, market. But here comes the New York Department of Financial Services regulation, part 500, really, really drives this home. And so many other regs 
have now come with that. And you look also at FTC consent orders and other consent judgments, and you see, okay, now we understand there is a role for a cybersecurity lawyer, both in-house, outside counsel, and, and, and for compliance in this field. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think we also forget too that, you know, our time spent in the government before or, you know, getting back into the private sector was kind of like getting a PhD in a, in a topic that you couldn't go to school for, you know, so which is amazing. So look, I got tons I want to dive into this last segment, but we got to take a quick break for here from our sponsors. Don't go away, folks. We're right back from more from our special guest, former Department of Justice Prosecutor, Erez Lieberman. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with former Department of Justice Prosecutor, Erez Lieberman. Erez, look, we've been involved in serious breaches, both in, um, you know, I, I did it as consultants after I left the government. And, and you know, the role of the lawyer in, in the private sector, it plays such a critical role, whether it's um, leading investigations or, uh, hiring third-party forensic firms under privilege, deciding whether to invoke privilege. And you have a unique perspective, having been on the, the government prosecution side and internal counsel at a Fortune 50. I'd love to get your take on the relationship with the CISO uh, and, you know, kind of the role of the, the cyber lawyer during the course of, a, you know, just day-to-day operations within a Fortune 50 company. Yeah, uh, thanks. And, and great points. It is such a tremendous role, uh, and it's all about partnership, right? Uh, the in-house, we talk about our in-house clients, our internal clients, and we call them clients. And 
I always found that a little odd in the sense that, yes, the CISO was my in-house internal client, uh, but I like to think of him much more as a partner. And for me, at least, uh, I had a, a wonderful partner, Tom Dowdy, the CISO at Prudential, a uh, great guy, really knows his stuff, uh, also has a public service background, was in the military. So we, we related with some of that uh, public service aspect of that. And uh, really, really brought me in and, and made me feel that I was a partner to that. And, and we also worked uh, very closely with Brian Smith. They're both still at Prudential. He was on the risk side. And so it was operational risk. It was the CISO and, and myself helping to lead the charge. Uh, one of the things that helped create that partnership feel as opposed to just the outside or the, the, the council feel is that at Prudential, we had the investigators the IR team, the, the cyber investigators, what was called the high tech investigations unit, uh, reporting into me. Uh, very, very recently that changed, but uh, for almost all my tenure there, they reported into me, and we had that to create the independence of the investigators. Remember, just a while ago, I talked about how I know that engineers and, and uh, IT individuals, InfoSec, they want to help fix. And you need to have independence so that if you've got a plaintiff coming in or if you've got just a shareholder or a board or, or a regulator, they say, well, who did this? What happened? You've got someone independent who's able to do that. Um, and often that's done by bringing in outside counsel or outside forensics. Uh, but we created some of that independence by having the investigators sit under me in law uh, and outside of the CISO organization. But even beyond that, the partnership with the CISO, I think, is one of the most important, if not the most important for a cyber attorney, uh, getting to know the CISO, getting to work with the CISO, and, and really demonstrating the importance of working together, uh, thinking through issues together. Now, thanks to my role at the Department of Justice and my knowledge of uh, the threats that came from that, my uh, relationship with the Secret Service and the FBI, I was also able uh, to bring in some of that threat intelligence background uh, and understanding and to really serve with the CISO as uh, one of the experts to go to senior management and to go to the board and talk about the landscape as we see it. Uh, and again, that, that's a partnership, right? Uh, to the extent that we expect our CISO to be the one delivering a message, the fact that uh, Tom allowed me to in and we were such great partners and really felt that way is a testament to his view of the role of lawyers and to our working relationship and, and how well we were able to get that done. Yeah, re really important to just be connected at the hip, especially when you have to, you know, break the glass and you're in the middle of an incident and, you know, you've got to be on the same page, right? And you got to have enough autonomy to have some checks and balances to be able to weigh in on your opinion, but you got to be you know, going after the common good, right? And so that's really important to have that relationship. So, so before we wrap up, Eris, I want to get your take. You know, what, what advice would you give, you know, young folks getting into, into legal and kind of, you know, choosing a path between private sector or public service? Um, you know, do you have any advice for folks that are looking to make it, you know, get into the legal field and kind of picking a path early in their career, which, 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 would you, which way would you steer them and why? Well, that's a great question. Uh, there's, I, there's no way you can hear my voice that I would ever tell anyone not to try and pursue the U.S. Attorney's Office or, or some sort of public service. If you can afford it, if you can take a few years to do that, uh, to give back, right? We're all trained and, and as lawyers and there's a lot of debt there from law school often. Uh, but if you can give back and then do that, uh, for me, the idea that I got to wake up every day and say my mission is to do justice today is just incredible. And I know companies are always talking about their mission statements and how uh, they want to help the world. And I, I believe in it, right? I don't think it's corporate mumbo jumbo. I, I felt it at Prudential, that's for sure. Uh, they looked at helping people be able to retire securely and how much peace of mind that brings. Uh, but that's still a different mission than literally a mission to wake up and do justice. Uh, for me, that was important, not just for myself, but I knew that with that kind of background, I would always be able to tell my kids about the importance of having done that, the importance of giving back and serving and providing uh, that as part of your life cycle. And I would recommend that to any lawyer. Uh, if you can, 
uh, and not everyone can. Not everyone can get in, right? It's very selective. I got very lucky to get in. Uh, but if you have an opportunity to do that, do it. And I know some people who've done it later, right? They didn't have that opportunity. They couldn't afford it. They had some financial obligations or they just it, the, the job just didn't open up in time. And partners who have left law firms, very, very lucrative careers and said, you know what? I now have that financial opportunity. And they went in much later, right? So most young assistant yep. U.S. attorneys are young, right? They're, they're a few years out of law school. And here come some partners in their 30s, 40s, even 50s and say, I'm going to the line. I'm going to work cases. I'm not going in as a super boss. I'm going to work cases and enjoy this. And, and I have tremendous respect for that. But I would highly recommend that. And I think that that also just provides some experience that you can't get in, in other areas and, and some upfront experience to do that. So for me, that's great getting to work with people like you, Andy, uh, where we get to learn as lawyers, we get to learn from you and the experience you bring and the experience other agents uh, bring from the different agencies is just incredible. And then you can take that uh, to other professions, but it be it in-house or consulting or outside counsel, or even outside the law, you can just take that experience which is invaluable. Yeah, fantastic, man. I learned a lot working with you too. So I really appreciate you coming on the show, buddy. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, time for us to bounce up on out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.